chapter 6. Does anybody need a Bible? If you do, just a quick hand up there and uh, the ushers will make their way so that you can follow along with us. We're in chapter 6. Exciting stuff. Are you guys loving this? The book of Romans? Good stuff, right? Chapter 5. What would you say? As we ended chapter 5, we saw a comparison between Adam, the first man that God created and the father of us all, and Christ, who of course was the last Adam, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And we saw that those that are born as descendants of Adam, that would be all of us, are consequently born into sin with all of its effects and its curse upon our lives. Because we are descendants of him that sinned originally, then we are also heirs of that same condition and therefore we inherit a sinful nature. But those that come to Christ, that are born again after the Spirit, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he explained to him that that which is born after the flesh is flesh, Adam. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And that those that have been born again, born the second time after the nature of Christ, now inherit the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, the curse and the penalty of sin that we inherited from Adam is broken, and we're given the right to be called the children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To as many as received him, that is Christ, to them gave he power to be called the sons and the daughters of God. And so those that have been born again have been given this privilege now of of having the penalty and the curse of sin broken in our lives, and we are called the children of God. So now, as it stands, if you have been born after Adam and also then born again after Christ, you are a child of Adam in the physical three-dimensional realm. That wherein you operate in, in your everyday life, what you touch and handle and taste, and you know, that the physical realm, you are still a son of Adam. And you still have all of the characteristics of that life because you were born into it and therefore you carry it with you. The Bible calls that the realm of the flesh or living or moving after the flesh. But as a child of God, those that have been born again in Christ, you are also redeemed and sealed in the spirit. So you also carry with you the nature of Christ, the broken curse, if you would, The power of His Spirit residing and dwelling within you, empowering you to live the Christian life. And so you have both of these things happen at once. And so the fact that you have Christ now in your life gives you great joy because of your standing before God. And it gives you great hope in your future inheritance and that which is to come and the promise that we have because of what He's done for us. But it also presents us with a real and definite struggle in the present circumstance that we're in. Why? Because the nature that we receive as descendants of Adam 
is exactly the opposite of the nature that we receive as children of God, descendants newborn of Christ. The Bible describes it this way. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, the Apostle Paul describing these two natures and how contrary they are one to another, he says this. He says, now the works of the flesh, or the nature that you've been given after the flesh as a descendant of Adam, are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. I don't even know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. (laughs) Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the nature that we've received from our natural birth as descendants of Adam, the sinful nature that we carry with us. But, he goes on then in verse 22 to say, the fruit of the Spirit... The nature of the new birth that we've received now that we've come to Christ and we've asked Him to forgive our sins and to take up His residency, His dwelling within us. This new nature that we have now, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. So you can see that both of these two things kind of exist at the same time. You have this nature of Adam and this new nature of Christ. And the two personalities are now shoved into the same body at the same time, essentially. And it presents a real struggle. There's a real conflict that takes place now. Why? Because both of those personalities, that which is born after Adam and that which is born after Christ, both of those personalities have a mind and a will. And both of them want to exercise their mind and their will in in your life. And these two will fight against each other until one is subdued. Because they cannot both sit upon the single throne that exists within your life, within your heart. And so the struggle begins. You enter into the Christian life and you're filled with joy. You're overcome with hope for the future, for the inheritance, for the forgiveness that you have. But yet it doesn't take long for you to realize that there's a struggle that soon ensues because of this new birth that's taken place within you. It's illustrated so greatly In the book of Genesis chapter 25, Abraham was given a promise that his seed would, you know, proliferate and inherit this great promise and be this great nation. And so Isaac finally, or Abraham finally gives birth to Isaac and Isaac is raised up, this only son of of Abraham. And, And in time, he takes a wife, this woman, Rebecca. And it's miraculous how God brings this couple together that he is going to form and bless this nation with, Isaac and Rebekah. But there's a problem. The Bible says that Rebekah was barren. She couldn't have kids. Here, there's supposed to be a whole nation of people that's going to come from them, but Rebekah can't have children. 
And so Isaac, realizing that there's a problem here, he goes to the Lord and he prays and he says, Lord, I mean, you, you made a promise. And so God hears the prayer of Isaac. And soon after that, Rebecca conceives. And it's a time of great blessing, great joy, as now Rebecca is, is going to have children. And the promise of God is going to continue in this great time is, is coming. But soon after she sees her, you know, womb beginning to expand, something begins to happen within her, this struggle, this agita, this upsetness, this discomfort is happening as she's pregnant. And so finally it gets so bad that (coughs) she cries out and she said, Lord, if it be so, why am I thus? If this is such a blessing, if this is such a good thing that's happened to me, the promise of God coming to pass in my life, then why does it hurt so bad? Why is there such a struggle going on internally? And so the answer comes from the Lord. He says that in, actually it's Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, should come up on the board. God answers in the midst of this struggle. And he says unto her that two nations are in thy womb. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. The reason why you're feeling this struggle, the reason why this internal wrestling is happening within you is because there's two nations alive in you. Two contrary, separate types of people that are being grown up inside of you at the same time. And he says that one is stronger than the other one, very definitely. But, contrary to the natural order of strength and weakness, the older is going to serve the younger. Now, we all know that the older get served, right? If any of you who have children, you know that the oldest kind of walks around like, I'm the oldest. I get first pick. I get first thing. I'm the oldest. I get to choose. The oldest was the firstborn. They were favored throughout. But God said it will not be so in this case. The older will serve the younger. And the implication is that the weaker will be the greater. The weaker will be the one that is to triumph. It's against what's normal, what's natural. The same thing is true with you and I as we come to the new birth. Jesus moves in and all of a sudden there are two nations literally alive within us. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, this old man, it's there inside of us and this wrestling match ensues as all of a sudden we go about to live within the parameters of our old life. But now we have Christ and there's a wrestling match that begins. And we realize very quickly, early on in our Christian life, that the old man is much stronger than the new man. The the sinful, carnal inclinations that are in me from my natural birth are much stronger than the spiritual, righteous tendencies that are placed there by Christ. But yet, God declares as he looks at our lives, and he says, listen, the older is to serve the younger. The natural man is to be put under. The spiritual man, that which is born after Christ, is to be in control, is to be sovereign, the one that governs and directs the movements and the shape of your life. But that's not such an easy thing, is it? Because there's one that's definitely stronger than the other. And so this struggle comes into us as we receive Christ and we begin to operate within this new birth. There's a struggle that's going on inside of us. Now, thus far, (laughs) excuse me, in our study of Romans, Paul has shown us 
that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We understand that. He's shown us that justification, our righteousness, can only come through Jesus Christ by our placing our faith in Him. He's told us that. We understand it. He's told us in our last study that being justified by faith, now we have peace with God. We're no longer His enemies. We're no longer alienated from His life and from His promise. That God looks at you and me and He sees us as though we were Jesus Christ. He sees us as perfectly completed, completely righteous, completely holy, completely paid for in full. That we are the righteousness of Christ because we've accepted Christ. That's how God looks at us. The Bible calls that justification. You are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is going to leave that now in chapter 5. And as we move on into chapter 6, he's going to take up a whole new subject that concerns us as Christians. No longer is our justification an issue. Our justification has been settled on the cross. Now Paul is going to begin to talk to us about our sanctification. Our justification is something that was declared. It was an act that was done by Christ that we are beneficiaries of, that we are saved and forgiven. It's taken care of. However, our sanctification is a work that now begins within our life to conform us and change us into the image of Christ in reality. See, God sees us as already complete because of the blood. But now his spirit begins his work inside of us, bringing us up to speed with what he's already made us spiritually. Do you understand? It's sanctification. Justification declares us righteous. Sanctification makes us righteous as we're changed and conformed into his image. Justification happens in an instant when we come to Christ. But sanctification takes a lifetime. And we never complete it on this side of eternity. We'll always be growing, hopefully. Always be changing. Always be being made ever more into the personality of Christ. Justification takes care of the penalty of sin in our life. But sanctification takes care of the power of sin over our life. And it's absolutely a necessary part of our Christianity. The struggle within... Because we've been justified, but yet now we have to be sanctified. The work of God in changing us and making us righteous internally. So chapter 6 begins Paul dealing with the subject of sanctification. Being changed, being made and conformed into the image of Christ. Putting the old man under. Taking away the strength from the old man. And giving it to the new man. Becoming more Christ-like in our lives. Now verses 1 through 10 deal with positional sanctification. Our position as believers before God. You say, well, what do you mean by that positional sanctification? What does that mean? Well, before you came to Christ, when you were just living in the old state, you know, after the nature of Adam and doing whatever it was that you pleased and Christ was not in your life, there was a path that you were on. You were walking in a particular way. You know, the Bible calls that path sin. That's what Paul means in verse 1. If you look there in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's implying that there was a path that you were on in your old life, and that path was called sin. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that there were two roads, essentially, that there was a broad road that led to destruction and that there was a narrow path that led to life. Well, if we were going to give that broad path a more specific name, we would call it sin. And it's the position that you're in when you're walking after the nature of Adam, the old man. But see, now that you've been placed in Christ, your feet are no longer on that broad path that leads to death, but now they're placed upon the narrow path that leads to life. And your new position now in Christ is that you're on this road called sanctification as you walk towards heaven, and daily you're being changed and conformed into the image of Christ. And so Paul, in the first ten verses here of chapter 6, talks to us a little bit about this new position. This positional sanctification that we have as we're walking towards this place of holiness, this place of Christ-likeness, our position in Him. The first thing that the Bible says to us about this positional sanctification is that, very simply, is that it's something that we should desire. That we should desire to be sanctified. Look again with me at verses 1 and 2. Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? There may have been some at that time that Paul was writing this that, that maybe were thinking at this point, well, well, when did God reveal himself to me? It was when I was in sin. That's what Paul said in the last chapter, is that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That it was then that his love was manifested to us in the time that we were his enemies. So maybe if we just continue on in that old path, that that's where God will continue to meet us. And Paul is saying that's a very flawed logic. That he came to save you from that old life. He came to deliver you from the destructive habits and tendencies and sins that you were living in in that time. That you shouldn't desire to any longer. He says, no, you were dead in sin. And now, being in Christ, you have died to sin. So how should you now desire to continue in it? I'm always amazed at the number of Christians, or people that want to call themselves Christians, that want to be saved, but they don't really want to be changed. That they want God in their lives, but they don't really want to stop sinning. They don't want to go to hell, and so they'll come forward, they'll make a profession, they'll maybe even attend church, or maybe even get involved, but they fail to allow Christ access to their lives to change their nature and their behavior. They don't really want to be sanctified. They kind of like the old path. They find themselves attracted to it, even though they know the truth of where it's heading. Now, the true Christian, someone who really understands what's taken place within them and what Jesus accomplished on the cross recognizes the wickedness of sin, the destructiveness of the old life, and wants to be completely free from it and changed into the image of Christ. Anyone who wishes in their heart that they could continue in the old ways and still be saved is like Lot's wife. You remember Lot's wife? There they were in Sodom, and you know the place was greatly, the Bible says, exceeding wicked before the Lord. That they were throwing it up in his face that they were going to rebel against his ways and his order of things. And God in his great mercy sends an angel in there at the answer of a prayer of Abraham. And he goes in and they grab Lot and Lot's wife and they bring them out of Sodom. 
just seconds before this destruction, this ball of fire is about to fall upon it. And as they're being taken out and they're literally arguing with the angel, it says that Lot's wife looked back longingly at the city of Sodom. That her heart was being pulled back. That that was her life. That's where she wanted to be. That's where her affections were. And as she looked back at that city, being miraculously delivered from its destruction, the Bible says at that moment she was turned into a pillar of salt. That her destiny was sealed there as she cast in her lot with the wickedness of Sodom. The second shortest verse in the Bible was a warning that Jesus gave to his disciples concerning the condition of men's hearts in the last days. He said, remember Lot's wife. He said, beware that you don't find yourself in a position where you've been saved from the wickedness of this world, but yet in your heart you long for its pleasures and its delicacies. Beware, Jesus said. Remember Lot's wife. There are many Christians, people that call themselves Christians, that don't really want to be changed into the image of Christ. They're not attracted to him or his ways. They simply want the fire insurance of not going to hell. But those of us that are saved should desire the work of sanctification to take place in our lives. Paul says, should we that have been freed from sin, that are dead to sin, continue to live any longer therein? And he says, God forbid. God forbid that we should want to do that. And that's the first fact of this positional sanctification is that it should be something that we want. Do you, Christian, want to be changed into the image of Christ? Do you want day by day to be living a more holy lifestyle? To be more and more separated from the filth of this world and sanctified unto our Lord and our Master, our Savior, our Lover, the one who died for our sins, who gave his life for us? That's the first thing that Paul tells us. The second thing we learn about this positional sanctification is that through the rite of baptism, we become one with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Look with me at verse 3. He says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now there are only two rituals that were instituted by the Lord and placed upon his church. The first was communion. That, that we're to, as often as we will, take the bread and break it and divide it amongst ourselves and partake of that one body and to share the cup, the cup of salvation. And to do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said, it's a very real thing that Jesus gave for us to do. The other is baptism. The going under the water at the time of salvation, of coming forth and making an outward declaration of what's taken place inside our lives in reality. Now, when a person is water baptized, what they are doing is they are symbolically and spiritually being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. The book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia these words. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this verse is a depiction of what takes place when a person is baptized. When a person goes under the water, they surrender themselves to be guided and directed by someone else's hands and they go under the water, the statement that they are making is that I am crucified with Christ. I am dead to this world, to its pleasures and its passions. The old man, the strong nature of Adam that was within me is being buried under this water as I am now immersed fully in its, you know, you know, flow and it's being swept away as I'm crucified with Christ as they go under the water. But then as they are then raised out of the water, not with their own power, but with the hands of someone else, they're being brought back up. The statement that's being made then is that nevertheless, I live. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live as they come up out of the water. And, and, and there's a new life. I've been crucified, but yet I'm still alive. There's something, there's a new work. There's something that's going on inside of me. And then as they get up out of the water and dry off, the statement that they're making then is the rest of the verse as they dry off. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, this change, this transformation, this mark, this day in my life. I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus went to Calvary, and there he took the beating that they laid upon him and his hands were pierced and he was hung up with that crown of thorns pressed into his head. And he died for the sins that you and I committed. He took with him there on that cross all of sin's corruption, its strength, and its dominion. All of that sin was laid upon Jesus Christ when he was hanging there upon the cross. The corruption of sin was beaten by the righteousness of his life. The Bible says that he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He lived absolutely righteously, perfect every day of his life. The Bible says that no sin or iniquity was found in him. And therefore, he crushed the corruption of sin by beating it, living as a man, and yet not giving in to the temptation and the power of sin. The strength of sin was beaten by Jesus Christ as he suffered the actions in his passion And yet he overcame all of that suffering and its call for him to save himself. To use his power in some way to deliver himself from taking upon him the suffering and the strength of that sin. The strength of sin was broken. And the dominion that sin had was beaten by Jesus Christ as he rose from the dead. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 54 through 57, it says that death, is swallowed up in victory. And then verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus beat the power of sin in all of its corruption, in all of its strength, in all of its dominion as he hung there upon the cross, surrendered and obedient to the will of the Father, and as he rose again in new life. And when a Christian, a person, you and I, when we come to the waters of baptism, 
When we get dunked in that symbolic manner, we are symbolically and spiritually united or made one with Jesus Christ. Something supernatural takes place as we enter into those waters and we come up. And therefore, because of that unification, all of the power that Jesus possessed through his work on the cross is imparted to you and I as well. All of the power that he demonstrated in breaking the corruption and the strength and the dominion of sin is imparted to you and I. And we're given power to live this new life that he calls us into. And so Paul is telling us here that the second thing concerning our positional sanctification is that through baptism, we are made one with Christ in his death and resurrection. And therefore imparted to us is all of the power that we need to break free from sin's dominion and its curse within our lives. Not in that state of just God declaring it so, justification, but as it concerns our sanctification. He's given us power to live the Christian life. If you haven't been baptized since you have given your life to the Lord, I highly suggest it's just over a week away you have the chance to make that outward declaration. To go under the water and declare with your own mouth that I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. There's something supernatural that takes place in the waters of baptism that God will impart to you something that you need for your Christian life. There's a sign-up sheet on the back. I hope (coughs) that if that's you here, that you will go to the waters of baptism. But Paul tells us that in that time, there's something that happens. And then number three, he tells us that the old man, this old, strong nature that we took with us into our time of salvation, has lost his power. Look at verse 6. He says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The Bible is very clear about the strength of the old man before we come to Christ in salvation. I don't think we have to look too far. We're all familiar with the strength of the old man. We know of his power and what he's capable of. Paul uses this language to describe it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, wherein in time past, your old life, he says, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our lifestyle in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That this old man who lives for nothing else but to satisfy and satiate his lusts and longings, Paul tells us that he works in perfect union with Satan himself, living only to satisfy his lusts. But verse 7, back here in Romans chapter 6, tells us that our old man has about as much power over us now as a man in a coffin has. He says, he that is dead is freed from sin. See, (coughs) excuse me, if we've been planted in the likeness of his death, then we died, our old man and all of his strength died with Christ. 
Us pastors, we spend a lot more time in hospitals and funeral homes than most other people. And we've seen a lot of dead people. And you know something? I have never seen someone laying in a coffin that's jonesing for a cigarette. I've never seen someone who's lying there in the grave clothes that's just struggling, trying to beat back that temptation to, to, to sin in some way or to give themselves over to some immoral behavior, some immoral lust. It's amazing that they just look so peaceful. They're just dead. They're completely free from that temptation, from the grip of the sin that may have held them their whole life. And Paul is saying to you and I that in this positional sanctification that we have because of what Christ has done in our lives, the power of the old man is broken. That we are dead to that old nature and that we no longer have to give in to its affections and its lusts. It's lost its power. And then finally, he tells us that the world itself has lost its grip upon us. Look at verse 9. He says, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, for death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, the two roads, the wide and the narrow. You know, you recall, I'll I'll read you the verse. Jesus said, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. The wide way of the world leads to death and destruction. And the narrow way of Christ leads to righteousness and life. Jesus, or I'm sorry, John, in 1 John chapter 2, 15, he says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, he says, is passing away with its infections and its lusts. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. That the world, this wide way of the world, it's a path that leads to destruction. It's declining. It's going nowhere. It doesn't satisfy. But that he that does the will of God will live that there is life. Jesus, it tells us here in these verses, that death, that in that he died, he dieth no more, for death hath no more dominion over him. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, be of good cheer. He said, I have overcome the world. Through the death of Christ on the cross, the power of the world to draw away the disciples of Christ, has been broken. And our position in Him is that the world has no more dominion over us that we should obey it in what it calls us and tempts us with and to do. So our positional sanctification before Christ, before God, is that first of all, we should desire it. Second of all, that through baptism we become one with Christ in His death and His resurrection. The third, our old man has lost his power. And that finally, the world itself has lost its grip on us. Paul tells us all of these things are true for us as we have now been placed in this path of sanctification that we've been called to be made righteous, to be made like Christ. Now, I know that there are some of you that are sitting here and you say, wow, you know, I see all of that and I agree with all of that. That's great, but that didn't help me at all. 
Because you know what? I've been baptized. I've been walking with Jesus for some time now. And you know what? I still struggle. And as, you know, articulate as all of that was, and as good as all that sounds, there's still a real struggle going on within my life. And that positional sanctification doesn't really sound all that practical as it concerns my everyday life. It's like that true story of the woman who went to the pastor for counsel. And and she asked and she laid down all of the things that were on her heart and on her mind and the tears were flowing and, and the pastor went and he read her all the verses in the scripture to answer all of her questions and all of her concerns. And after everything was said and, and, and you know, it was time for her to speak again, she looked at him and, and she said, yeah, that's the Bible, but this is real life. You know, and that was her response to that. You know, yeah, that's the Bible, but this is real life. And sometimes that can be a very real sentiment that we experience in our Christian walk. It's like, yeah, I understand what you just said, but that doesn't line up with what I'm experiencing in real life. So how does that play out or flesh out in, in, in what happens to me tomorrow when I leave this place? It, it sounds really good the way Paul put it. But what about the practical sanctification? What about not just the theory, but how does this work in practice? How do I get victory over sin and over the old man in my life now? Well, Paul goes on to give them those practical things in verses 11 through 13. The first thing that he tells them that they're to do practically is to reckon it to be true. Look at verse 11. He says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Reckon it to be so. Now, two weeks ago, I have a hard time remembering yesterday, but if you can remember two weeks ago, back in chapter 4, we were talking about righteousness that comes through faith. And if you recall, 11 times in that chapter, Paul talked about an imputed righteousness. That the righteousness that we get is not something that we earn. It's something that's imputed to us. Or if you remember, it's laid to our account. It's d- direct deposited there. That we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But yet God did it. God put it there. He imputed it to us. And 11 times in that chapter, he, he uses that word that it's imputed. It's laid to the account of. It's the same word that Paul uses here concerning our practical daily life of walking with the Lord. He says, reckon it so that the old man is dead. That he's rendered inactive. Put it into the account and believe it, grab hold of it, grasp it by faith that you've been crucified with Christ and that the old man no longer has any power over your life. That the power of, of you know... Um, Salvation and the rite of baptism have the authority to reckon now the old man to be dead. That you are indeed dead and that you have the power, you have the ability. I remember listening to Don McClure. You may remember he shared here a couple times. Uh, and and he, he used to do all of the marriage counseling and the pastoral counseling at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa back in the 1970s. <coughs> And he told the story of one time a woman came in and she was suicidal, that she wanted to kill herself. And he said, you know, that he was in the office with her and he said he never told Pastor Chuck that he gave her this counsel, but, but that she came in and she said that she wanted to kill herself, that she was serious and that she was getting ready to do it. And he said that he looked at her and he said, I think you should. And she said, you know, she was taken aback. She said, what? What are you talking about? And he said, no, I'm all for it. 
I think the world is overpopulated and it's crowded anyways. And I think that you would be doing the best thing that you could do. Just, I think you should just go home and do it. And she was completely flabbergasted, blown out of the water that he would say this to her. And said, so, what do you mean? You're supposed to talk me out of it. And he said, well, no, I think you should do it. But he said, but before you do it, let me just ask you a question. He said, is there anything wrong with your, your heart, you know, internally, the, you know, your pump? She said, no, my heart's fine. Well, what about your eyes? Do your eyes work okay? You know, your senses, you can smell and see and hear and all that. And she said, yeah, it's fine. Do you have diabetes? Any terminal illnesses? No. Do you have any diseases? Anything doesn't work? No, no, no. You know, it's just fine. You're fine. He says, well, he goes, you know, there's no sense killing your body. It seems like everything's fine with your body. But he said, maybe there's someone inside that needs to die. Maybe there's something inside of you that needs to die. It's not the physical, because you see, you can kill the physical. But you're not going to get what you're trying to get. Because what's really bothering you is not what you're going to affect by committing suicide. That lives on forever. It's the old man. And all of its corruption and all of its sin. It will never be satisfied. It will always be unstable. It will always have reason for suicide. And so he said, maybe that needs to die. Now listen, if you've received Christ as your Savior, if you've come to him, then I want you to understand that the dagger has been taken and the old man has been pierced. And, and though maybe his heart is still beating and his mouth is still shooting, he is slowly dying. That you made the decision at the time you came to Christ that you wanted to die to the old man. Now, you may foolishly be really trying to bring him back to life. Nursing him, feeding him, bringing him. But listen, if you've come to Christ, you've already set the dagger. And guess what? The destiny is sealed. And no matter what you do, the strength and the health of that old man will never be what it was. So you better just give up now. Stop living that old life. Paul says, reckon it to be that that old man is dead. As you have died with Christ, you are now dead to the old man. Reckon it to be so. Render him inactive, because that's the truth of the matter. The second thing that he tells them in verse 12 is to refuse. Reckon it to be so, but then refuse. He says, let not, or (coughs) do not let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. He says, refuse. Now, the truth is that sin still wants to reign in you. Sin still wants to have authority and control over your life. The desire of that sin has not changed. It's still there and it will still want to. The difference is that now you have the choice of whether or not you're going to obey it. The old man still has a voice, but he possesses no power. He's very clever. Perhaps you've heard the voice of the old man coming to you at certain times of temptation. The temptation comes and the spirit inside of you, you get a little uncomfortable because you know that there's a decision to be made, that something's going to happen. And the voice of the old man will crop up and he'll say, well, you know, this is what you've always done. You've always kind of behaved this way. You've always kind of lived this sort of lifestyle and it's really not going to affect your Christianity. So, you know, although you don't have to, and maybe it's not the best thing for you, it's really not going to hurt anything. So just go for it. This is a small thing. It's really not a problem. You don't have a problem. You can control it. Listen, you've been drinking socially for years. They'll call you a fanatic. You don't want them to call you a fanatic. Besides, you want to win them the right way. I mean, you want to win them to our side. You know, so, so, you know, you can't just go all haywire here in this Christian thing. 
Old man's very clever. Just take a small toke. It's, it's really no big deal. Just take a, a peek. It's just a little bit. It's, it's not going to hurt you. It's not gonna, you're saved by grace through faith. It's not by works. You'll be all right. Hey, it's, it's not sex. It's just play. It's okay. I mean, you know, you haven't crossed the line. It's not literally fornication. It's, it's, it's okay. It's no big deal. The old man's very, very clever. He has a voice. But Paul says, you have a choice. That you are to not let sin reign in your mortal body. That you can make the decision of saying, no, I'm not going to control it. I'm not going to entertain the thought and these types of things. I'm going to refuse. In Christ, you have the power to refuse. Praise the Lord. Because in the world, you didn't have that power. You were bound and held captive to obey sin in all of its affections and its lusts. And you had no choice whatsoever. In Christ, you have a choice. I remember early on as a Christian, you know, as a young man, you know, you have those youthful lusts. And, you know, we'd be driving, me and this guy that I worked with, we'd be driving in the truck. And it would be a hot summer day and we'd be driving down the road. And, and sure enough, up ahead, there would be a, a female figure that would come jogging towards us, towards the truck. And the natural inclination would be just, hey, you know, no one's really paying attention. You could just take a peek and observe that figure and, you know, no one's going to know about it and no one's going to care. And what difference is it going to make? And I remember saying, no, Lord, I want to do what's right. And although that's a very real temptation and, and, and I'm not going to lie and say that, 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 that uh, oh, I'm so holy that that wouldn't affect me. That I want to say, no, I, I just want to be like Job and say, I've set a covenant with my eyes that I'm not going to look upon a maid. And so I would purposely look the other way and everything within this old man power that was still alive would be trying to pull my eyes to look at, at, at this, just this female figure that's just jogging by. And I would say, no, I'm not going to do it. And then the, the truck would pass and I would look up and I was amazed that it didn't hurt. It didn't, I, I wasn't like, oh man, I really missed out. I remember just being like, wow, you know, it's, it's like that never happened. It doesn't hurt at all. And I remember that after, you know, working for, with this guy for several weeks, you know, another circumstance. And he said, he looked at me and said, you know, I've noticed something about you. He said, you don't ever look when there's a woman that we're driving by in the truck. And I said, wow, you know, what's amazing is that it doesn't hurt. You could do it. You, you don't have to look, you know, and now to this day, you know, I told, I shared with you before, you know, I work on these high buildings in the city, you know, and it's like a fad that people like to change and shower in a windowless bathroom or bedroom. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're on the job in the city and all of a sudden you hear the stampede of feet go to the edge of the building. And some guys pull out binoculars out of their lunch bag and you're like, what are you sick? You know, and, and, you know, and I'm over there and I'm just working. And then you go along, and I was like, it doesn't hurt. Now, listen, I'm not going to lie to you and say that there isn't a temptation, that there isn't something in me that's saying, oh, come on, just lift up your head a little bit. You know, but listen, I'm telling you, it doesn't hurt. You have the choice. Those guys, it's like watching a puppet. They're being, you know, they're being pulled over there, and they can't control it. You just keep working. And sometimes I've been so sinister as to go up to guys, I'll take off, you know, my hard hat and I'll walk up to him and I'll be like, hey, uh, you know, I got a picture of you looking out the window uh, a couple hours ago. You know, it's a felony. It's called espionage and it, you can go to jail for that, right? Oh, what? You know, and, like, and then I'll say, ha, just joking, you know, whatever. But really, you know, I'll say, really, you know, you're spying. You can go to jail for looking at someone in a window like that. Well, I didn't know that, you know, it's just kind of fun. Mess around with them. But you have the ability in Christ to refuse. That's what Paul says. He says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. You don't have to. And it doesn't hurt. In fact, it's very rewarding. 
Wow, Lord, you give me power to do what's right. It's a great experience. The third thing he says practically, he says yield. Yield the right of way, verse 13. He says, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, when you're driving in your car, the word yield implies who gets to go first. You know, now you don't look for those situations. You don't wake up in the morning and think to yourself as you're leaving the door, I know that when I get to that intersection, I'm going first. You don't even think about it. You know, that's like a, a, a non-issue part of the day. You'll deal with it when you get there, right? But yield means who gets the right of way. Who's going to get to go first? You know, now you know that internally within you that there is a race between the old nature and the new nature over who's going to get to go first today. Who's going to be in control? Who's going to win this thing? And you get to be the traffic cop to determine who's going to be the one that goes first. It's the same idea here as Paul says to them to yield. He says, don't yield to the demands of sin in your life, but rather yield yourself to the will of God in your life. That when that time comes and that decision has to be made over who's going to win, Paul says, just gently yield to the will of God. You don't have to give way to the power of sin. You say, that sounds really easy, Nick. You know, you make that sound real easy from up there behind that podium as you pontificate this, you know, righteousness that we're to display as Christians and all these things. But, but you don't see the power of these things in my life. You don't realize the struggles that I have and the things that I'm going through. And, you know, yeah, that's a very simplistic explanation, but it's not that easy. Well, let me tell you the facts of the matter as we wrap this up. These are the facts of the matter concerning your position in Christ and his desire to sanctify you and make you holy. Verse 14 declaratively, authoritatively says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Now that is not a command. It's a promise. He's saying that the truth of the matter is that sin does not have dominion over you. A woman came to K.P. Yohannan one time after a service and she said to him, would you pray for me? And he said, what would you have me to pray for? And she said, well, that God would cast out the demon of smoking in my life. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but I don't pray for such things. And she said, what, are you, you, you ashamed? Are you afraid that God doesn't have power to deliver me from the demon of smoking? And he said, no, ma'am, that's not the problem at all. He said, there is no demon of smoking. The problem is that God cannot cast out the flesh. That's your decision to be made. That it isn't the demon. You know, Christians want to say, well, there's the demon of this and the demon of that and the demon of this. No, listen, the Bible says that sin shall not have dominion over you. That you have power through the blood of Jesus Christ and his spirit living within you to refuse its captivity upon your life. You say, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. There's a generational curse. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that. It's a generational curse. I mean, my grandfather was an alcoholic, and my mother and father are both alcoholics, and therefore I am an alcoholic. And this is just a generational curse. This is bigger than what Christ can do is living inside of me. This can't happen. Well, listen to what the Bible says about the generational curse, because I can't tell you how many times I've heard about the generational curse. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, it says that the word of the Lord came unto me again. God says this. This is God speaking. This is God, what he says to you about the generational curse. He says, what mean ye that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. 
Our fathers ate sour grapes, and so therefore our teeth are messed up. It's their fault. It's my ancestors' fault that I'm like this. I have this issue because of what they did in their lives and this type of thing. God says this, as I live, verse 3, saith the Lord God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the father, so is the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and then he goes on to say and does this and this and this, but the conclusion is he shall live. God says everybody bears their own burden. Your sin is not because of your parents. Now, don't get me wrong. Do we have tendencies that reflect that which our parents are and, and did? Yes, absolutely. But he says that's no excuse for you to continue in sin. Because sin shall not have dominion over the child of God. You have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been crucified with him on the cross and raised again with him in resurrection power. And if sin does not have dominion over him, sin shall not have dominion over you either. Praise the Lord. You and I are free from the power of sin within our life. That's the fact of the matter. You could take it to the bank. Reckon that to be so. That you have this thing. Now he goes on to say that you may not have to serve the flesh, but you do have to serve someone. Look at verse 15. He says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? He says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Listen to what he's saying here, is that you're going to serve somebody. You will either serve sin in the flesh in the old man, or you will serve righteousness in the spirit of God in the new man. But you will serve someone. You know, I think it's a sign of true salvation when someone becomes a servant of righteousness. Before you get saved, you're just a servant of sin. When the opportunity to sin comes, you take it. You know, I mean, if that's your sin, you know, maybe you say, well, I was never a coke addict. You know, maybe I didn't give myself to that. But whatever it is that you did give yourself to, when that opportunity came, you did it. But then something happens, you get saved. And then that opportunity comes and the conflict is birthed. And if you give in and you sin, righteousness has a voice within you that says that was not the right thing to do. And you say, what was that? I never heard that voice before. I, I, I did this all the time and never had that voice say anything to me. And now I'm hearing that voice. And all of a sudden, there's a transaction taking place. You were a slave to sin, but now soon you will be a slave to righteousness. Righteousness is not going to let a child of God get away with sin continually. It will have a voice and a say. And when a person has the, 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 the being bound to righteousness going on within them, that's an evidence, a sign that they are truly saved. I was talking with a brother recently who, who was sharing some things with me about a place that he went. And I, he, he was doing something and he was at a boxing match. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. I've always wanted to go to a boxing match. And he said to me, yeah, but you know what? He goes, I've been to a million boxing matches. But for the first time, I was sitting there thinking, am I really supposed to be here? And I said, what? He goes, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the crowd and the, you know, the way it was. And then they got the girls with the, you know, the cards telling you what round it is and all this stuff. And he says, you know, I really lost my peace. I wasn't supposed to be there. And I said, wow, you know what? You're saved. 
That tells me that you're saved. You've done this your whole life, and now all of a sudden you come to Christ, and you're in this place, and you don't think you should be there anymore, and, and it's a real conviction that you have. There's a war. There's something going on. You've become a servant of righteousness. You're going to serve someone. There's no neutral ground. You can either choose to serve your flesh and sin, or you can serve righteousness unto holiness and peace. But you're going to serve someone. We're way out of time. I'm, all, I'm pausing because I'm trying to think of ways to just end this. <laughs> I've got more to say, but let's close because I don't want to keep you here. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for, for your word, for your truth, for your goodness, Lord. We know, Lord, that you've set us free from the power of sin and death and that you desire to do a work within us, Lord, that you want to make us Christ-like. Lord, you want to sanctify us holy. You don't want to leave us in the condition that you found us in. And so, Lord, we pray that the older would serve the younger. That, Lord, you would put the flesh under. That, Lord, you would teach us the secret of living this life of holiness and peace. I think of, Lord, what you said in Hebrews, that, that, that you, Jesus, that you loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And therefore, you were anointed with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And, Lord, I know that for myself and for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that if we would give ourselves completely to you, that, Lord, that if we would let you have your rightful place within our hearts, Lord, that the things that you want to do for us, the things that you want to do in us, oh, Lord, that would be for our peace. We pray, Lord, that you would win. Lord, we know the dagger has been set, and we pray, Lord, that the life of the old man would be drained out completely. Teach us to feed the Spirit within us. Teach us to draw daily from your goodness and your kindness and your strength. And Lord, may at the end of, of it all, may, may we hear your voice as you say, well done, good and faithful servant, that we yielded ourselves to you and to let you do your work in our lives. So thank you, Lord. We just give you the glory, Lord, for the work you're doing in our lives. And I would encourage any of you here tonight, if you sense that the Spirit within your heart is whispering to you that you've just let the flesh take over, you've let the old man have way too much, and that he is the stronger and he's the one who's greater within you, that even right now the power of God is here and the blood of Jesus Christ is still strong enough to put him back under. And in your heart you sense that there's a discontentment, there's a struggle. There's a lack of peace within you. You know that there's to be more to this Christianity, but yet you find yourself coming short of its full expression and experience within you. I would urge you to come to God right now in your heart and just say, Lord, please help me. Lord, forgive me for living after the flesh. Forgive me for giving place and seeking to satisfy and gratify the urges and desires of the flesh and yet still try to hold on to some semblance of spiritual life. Help me, Lord. Forgive me. Lead me in the way that I should go. Light a fire in me again to desire and have an affection for spiritual things. He'll answer you. He'll meet with you. As we sing this last song, may God fill you. May He stir in your hearts passion for Him. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand. Amen.